welcome to CV Now, your podcast from Houston Methodist to Bakey CV Education. I'm your host, George Tripsis. The lines between cardiac and vascular surgery have sharpened and blurred over the years. So training paradigms for cardiovascular surgery has shifted along with the changing tides of the field. Back when I trained, the techniques that we used in cardiac surgery were very similar to what you learned in general surgery. The difference were whether the threads were smaller, the needles were smaller, and the instruments were longer. Uh, other than that, the techniques were the same. Now it's very, very, very different. And so we're faced with the challenge of having more things to learn and less time to learn it. In today's podcast, we brought together a vascular surgeon, a cardiac surgeon, and one who does both to discuss the training of the cardiovascular surgeons of the future. Future classes of residents and fellows will need to learn more in less time, with a variety of tracks to choose from as the profession balance the needs for specialists and generalists and adjust to technological changes. Dr. Alan Lumsen, vascular surgeon and chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Surgery at Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center, is joined by Dr. Thomas McGilvery, Chief of Cardiac Surgery and Thoracic Transplant at Houston Methodist, and Dr. Marvin Atkins, a dual-trained cardiovascular surgeon at Houston Methodist Sugarland Hospital. Hello, my name is Alan Lumsden, and this afternoon we're going to focus on the training of the cardiovascular surgeon of the future. So I'm a vascular surgeon. I'm Tommy Gilbury. I'm a cardiac surgeon. And I'm Marvin Atkins. I'm both, uh, <laughs> both a cardiovascular uh, surgeon. So that's <clears> kind of, having us. That's kind of what we're here, here to talk about this afternoon. When I came down to Houston, uh, Dr. Bakey was still around, and the word cardiovascular surgeon was completely pervasive. At Emory, I never even heard of that word being used. Sure. Cardiothoracic surgeons and there were vascular surgeons. In Houston, everybody was a cardiovascular surgeon. And I bristled at the concept because I was traditionally trained or boards in cardiothoracic and boards in vascular. Somehow or other, this got all messed up here. Um, part of it was the legacy. A lot of those uh, procedures were being developed here at Methodist and in Houston. And we often think of Dr. DeBakey as being more vascular than cardiac surgeon. Dr. Cooley, everything's of more uh, cardiac than vascular surgeon. So, Tom, you come from a very different background. What was it like up in Boston? So, in, in Boston, it was very much, there were cardiothoracic, it was actually cardiac surgeons, there were thoracic surgeons, and there were vascular surgeons. Uh, certainly, the training of cardiac and thoracic surgeons were the same. And it still is the same in terms of the board and the board requirements. Uh, but where I came from, we either were cardiac surgeons or thoracic surgeons, and very rarely did that get crossed. The, the vascular surgeons were, again, completely separate. So then, Marvin, you came along. Yeah. Messed up the whole picture. <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, so my uh, training began back in 2000, finished general surgery in 2005, uh, went up to the Mass General in Boston and did a two-year vascular surgery fellowship with Rich Cambria uh, and the other faculty there. Uh, actually worked with Tom McGilvery when I was there, some uh, a few cases which overlap between cardiac and vascular, uh, and had a busy vascular practice, so doing uh, endovascular aneurysm repair, open aneurysm repair, and had a pretty good experience with thoracic and thoracoabdominal aneurysms, both open and endovascular. Uh, subsequently moved back to Texas and was in practice for about 10 years, had a busy uh, practice uh, doing carotids, uh, lots of aneurysms, uh, not a huge volume of thoracic and thoracoabdominal cases, uh, but a decent volume. We started a training program, had fellows. Uh, and what I found over time is that the open volume, just as is everywhere in the United States, continued to decrease. Uh, and I found myself uh, doing fewer and fewer open thoracoabdominal aneurysms every year. Uh, and it came to a point where I kind of had to you know, decide, was I going to uh, do the patient's justice by just doing a few of these per year? Uh, or is this something that I just was gonna take out of my practice and abdicate and refer those patients on to Houston and other centers uh, that do a larger volume of these cases? Because clearly these are complex cases. Uh, it takes more than just the surgeon, it's the ICU team, the anesthesiologist, and, and the total care package that provides 
the ultimate uh, best results for these patients. And so I kind of had a, a long discussion with my wife over several years uh, and felt that the, the best option uh, for me uh, to continue to do those cases uh, would be to get further training in cardiac surgery, which was dealing with you know open dissections, uh, open arch cases, and more open aortic surgery than you know the vascular practice that I had, which was you know having diminished aortic cases every year. Uh, so I made the ultimate uh, decision uh, back in uh, 2017 at the age of 43 to go back as a super old fellow uh, to the University of Pennsylvania and work with um, Joe Bavaria and the, the group there that has a busy central aortic practice. Uh, so I spent two years there, and uh, the, the final year, uh, Dr. Bavaria had taken, uh, usually had taken two aortic fellows every year, and, and my year, he took no aortic fellows, and so we were able to, our senior year, move into the aortic fellows spot and basically spend an entire year with him doing aortic surgery, in addition to all the rest of cardiothoracic surgery. So when you were applying for CT fellowships, <clears throat> what do these what do they say? Do you think you were probably crazy? about half of the, yeah, mm -hmm. probably about half the interviews started <clears throat> off with "Are you crazy?" is the first sentence. Um, but uh, you I know, hope it, you didn't say no. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. Uh, you know I, I had my reasons. I had it uh, logically kind of uh, thought out in my mind and able to express that to people that I had a, a really big interest in aortic surgery and didn't want to give that up. Um, doing mostly endovascular types of cases and wanted to continue to have a robust volume of open aortic surgery. And, and that was my kind of selling point uh, for fellowship. Uh, the funny thing is uh, three of the attendings that were there were my junior residents uh, yeah. way back when. So it was uh, uh, fortunately uh, things uh, went well way back when. So it was kind of an easy transition for me. So what do you think, Tom? We're still trying to figure out if you're crazy or the smartest guy we know. <laughs> I think a little of column A, a little of column B. Yeah, that's right. It, it is interesting. I think that uh, I don't think, certainly in cardiothoracic surgery, we know yet. There are currently three different pathways uh, that an interested resident can take or an interested medical student can take to get into cardiothoracic surgery. There's the traditional tract, which is you finish five years of general surgery and then go in and do a training program in cardiothoracic surgery. There's the integrated program, which is uh, six years, that you start right out of medical school and finish six years of CT surgery. And then there's the 4-3 program, which you go from a program that has a cardiothoracic surgery residency and you can do three years or, excuse me, four years of general surgery and then three years of training. And, and the, the last two are still relatively new and, and I don't think there's really any data to, to show whether any one is better than the other or if all are, all are good. I think there's also a fourth training pathway now that's been approved by the American Board of Thoracic Surgery is doing a 05 vascular surgery residency followed by a uh, cardiac surgery right. fellowship. Yeah, correct, yeah. Which would, I think that falls under the traditional track. Correct. You know, the, the, the challenge is that uh, certainly when these other pathways were being created, there was the worry that training was just too long. That if you had people go through general surgery and then oftentimes you had to do a couple of years of research and then do two or three years of training that that people weren't interested. They were, it was just too long of a training program. And so there was a, a real interest uh, to, to try to decrease the amount of time. The problem is, uh, I mean, there's more information to yeah. learn. There are more techniques to learn. Back, back when I trained, the techniques that we used in cardiac surgery were very similar to what you learned in general surgery. The difference were where the threads were smaller, the needles were smaller, and the instruments were longer. Uh, other than that, the techniques were the same. Now it's very, very, I mean, very, very, very different. Uh, and so we're faced with the challenge of having more things to learn and less time to learn it. So one of the things that prompted us to do this is that um, on the vascular side, just to recapitulate the vascular training models, there are essentially two. You either do five years in general surgery, two-year vascular fellowship, some people throw in a year of, of research. research, or along comes the integrated vascular mm -hmm. program. Now I can tell you that up front, I was not a big fan of that idea at all. Yeah. 
you know, I'm more than happy to admit that I think I was wrong about it. It increased the interest in vascular surgery. And, you know, although there's subtle differences, overall, they're very competent people who are coming out of mm -hmm. that program. But we, we live in a department of cardiovascular surgery where cardiac and vascular surgeons are all kind of in it together. And one of the strengths of that, I think, is that the vascular surgery trainees rotate on heart surgery. Correct. So two of our fourth year residents, we only have two per year, now want to do go into heart cardiac surgery. And it was fascinating, first of all, that they decided they wanted to do that because they found the things that you're doing very exciting. And then, as I started debriefing with them about their interviews, the amount of interest there was in cardiac surgery about hiring somebody who'd trained in vascular. And mm -hmm. the kind of comments that came back were, the general surgery residents don't really even do hardly any hand-sewn bowel anastomosis. They're kind of staple. We have right. to train everybody how to do a vascular anastomosis. You're going to come out trained, and you're going to have endovascular skills. skills at the end of the day. So the kind of light bulb went off, and I thought, well, you know, Maybe DeBakey was right. Maybe Carl, he was right about a lot of things. Um, you, you disagree with DeBakey in these here parts, that's your pearl, so I'm certainly not going to do that. And so, you know, it comes back to this idea if you're going to build a cardiovascular surgeon, it's kind of like what you've done. Right. But hopefully, you don't have not to go back. To, not to take your mid 40, 17 years to do it. Yeah. So, no, I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, you know, having the wire and catheter skills, especially as cardiac surgery is changing these days. So, uh, with structural heart, all of the uh, transcatheter therapies for aortic valve replacement, uh, mitral valve. Uh, clips and now uh, transcatheter mitral valve repair, uh, the vast array of transcatheter options for these patients is going to continue to increase. And being able to have wire catheter skills beyond just passing a wire into the aorta, but being able to cannulate things, use different types of catheters, and all those skills that we learned as a vascular surgeon really puts you a step ahead, uh, you know, compared to traditional uh, cardiac surgery trainees. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. You hear that uh, cardiac surgeons are becoming more like cardiologists. Cardiologists are becoming more <laughs> like cardiac surgeons. And I do think that there is, as we find out newer, better ways to take care of the same disease. I mean, in the old days, it was easy. Cardiac surgeons or surgeons did surgery. Everybody else did not. And, and I think as the 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 interventional role of some of the medical specialties have evolved, uh, and as the interventional techniques that cardi that surgeons have evolved, we become more together. The, the challenge in cardiothoracic surgery is, sure, vascular surgeons are very much like cardiovascular surgeons, but for those residents who are interested in doing general thoracic surgery, yeah. uh, certainly I think there is great benefit to getting a general surgery mm -hmm. exposure and. Uh, dealing with the foregut and uh, spending more time understanding the principles of surgical oncology. So that adds to the problem. Now we keep adding more things to learn Correct. and we don't take anything away. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it uh, do we have enough time? Uh, I didn't even get into congenital surgery, mm -hmm. uh, but do we have enough time to teach the residents what they need to know in order to be able to taken past their boards and to be competent in all of the aspects of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery. I mean, in my opinion, thoracic surgery these days with the use of robots, uh, VATS and thoracoscopic instruments, uh, all the surgical oncology that goes along with that, it is much closer to general surgery than it is to cardiac or vascular surgery. Agreed, agreed. So we were gonna change it? I mean, I've been listening to you. I mean, one of the challenges is we all come out of traditional academic specialties with, with typical tracks, and they've been built really 20, 30 years ago, that these were the models that you trained in. We really have changed them a little bit, but I mean, listening to you, it's almost like the thoracic surgeons need to come out of general surgery and the cardiac surgeons should come out of vascular surgery would be kind of the idea. Well, clearly, there can be some crossover. 
You know, I think it, a lot of it really depends upon the practice that you have after you get out of training. Mm -hmm. So if you are in a large academic medical center, you're gonna have cardiac surgeons, you're gonna have thoracic surgeons that typically yeah. are not, may not even be like they are here, not even in the same department, uh, much less really have much overlap or interaction between cases. The trouble becomes for surgeons, if they go out into community type of practice, they're expected to be able to do everything vascular, cardiac, and thoracic. Marvin, that's a great point. When I was a medical student, I did an elective in Kenya. And I remember at a meeting that they said, you know what, the way we train people, you build the cake and then you cut these vertical slices. And they said for a developing country, and I'm not talking about rural United States going at the same level, but they said, you need to cut the pie horizontally. And it's a little bit like that in that we, we train specialists but the community away from the big set needs journalists. Correct. But we, we don't regulate them in that way. We don't give privileges to the same extent in that way. And the boards are certainly not built that way. Right. And so should we be building community surgeons? Don't know. Yeah. Tough one. Yeah, it's yeah. a tough one. And I, you know, uh, we have a question up there about should, uh, should cardiac and thoracic surgery be separate Specialties. You want me to handle that, Tom? So you're off. That's. I mean, that's a. Um, <laughs> that's a third rail kind of question. But but you know it, it's. I mean, I I would say that yes, I think cardiac and thoracic surgery are very different now than they were thirty or forty years ago. I mean, what united cardiothoracic surgeons was the chest cavity where we both operated. Mm. I would venture a guess that that I think that those physicians, whether they be surgeons or interventionalists that do wire skill techniques, will not be the same group of specialists who are doing open cardiac surgery. I think it, I think it's a different skill set. I think that you can be superb in one and not necessarily the other. There, there may be people like Marvin who are superb in both, but, but it's, it, they, they are going to, I mean, it's going to be just in, in our lifetime. I mean, I think that if you look at what is now considered to be a straightforward EVAR compared to, you know, Tambigraft, I mean, it's a very different skill set. Uh, and if you want to stay not just in the aortic space and the peripheral vascular space, but getting into the structural heart space, that is, as we say, that's a full-time job. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that maybe we are going to have to continue. Maybe we will become like like cardiology, and there will be you know different subspecialties, and I think that the focus and the training will need to be more uh, and longer. I think the difficulty is you don't want to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, patients deserve the best care, the best, latest uh, you know uh, options for their disease process. Uh, and surgeons that are able to provide whatever the latest cutting edge technology is to help them through their problems in hopefully a minim minimally invasive way if possible. Um, so I think we have to carve out subspecialties and that's somewhat happening in cardiac surgeries these days. So mm -hmm. uh, after cardiac surgery training, it's very frequent these days for somebody to do a super fellowship mm -hmm. uh, that's either six months or a year in either aortic surgery, transplant, uh, mechanical circulatory support, uh, structural heart uh, or congenital. Uh, those are the kind of the usual four pathways that people tend to go if they're going to do some type of subspecialty training. Right. The, the, and again, as you pointed out, that's great if you're going to be in a big, busy academic center. Uh, community hospitals really won't be able to literally afford to have an aortic surgeon and a coronary surgeon and a right. mitral valve repair surgeon and a structural heart disease surgeon. So somehow we're going to have to strike the right balance. And uh, I don't, I mean, I don't, uh, there are countries that regionalize uh, care. Uh, I don't think that's something that we nationally are ready for, uh, ready now or may never be ready for. Uh, but but it, it, it certainly should be taken under consideration as we try to further shape uh, or create new training paradigms. It's interesting because uh, Michelle Macron was the um, president of the SVS a uh, year and a half ago, and his presidential address was pretty controversial uh, because one of the things he espoused and talked to him about this is 
should we be training general surgeons in the community how to do dialysis access? Should we be teaching them how to do femoral embolectomies or something like that? In other words, you know, what is, is a society to try and improve the general cardiovascular well-being of the population, or is it to protect me as a specialist? And I happen to believe it's the former. And so it comes back to this question of the community surgeon. Do you think a general surgeon can be trained to do a thoracotomy, an lobectomy, for example? Or maybe that's a bad example, but <clears throat> are there areas that we should be training the broader specialist, non-specialist in the periphery to do? A lot of societies go, absolutely not. That's part of our boards. We're not going to train other people to do it. I have a slightly different opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, my dad was a general surgeon and, and back 70 years ago, general surgeons were a specialty. Mm -hmm. uh, back when he did his residency, 2% of physicians uh, in the United States were specialty trained. Everybody else was a general practitioner. We, we don't think of a general surgeon as as being a, a specialist, but that's in fact what it is. And and he he did he did everything, and I, I would say he did everything very well. But he was trained to do everything, and I think that uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, whether he was doing a a, a a gastrectomy or a colectomy or a nephrectomy or a lobectomy, the instruments and the techniques were all the same. It was just a different place where you put the incision. Uh, you know, we, we've come a long way in terms of our techniques and our technology. And, and I think the ability for one specialist, as Marvin pointed out, to do it with the highest level of quality and safety, it's, that's, that's a tall order. Uh, can they do it? Sure. Should they be able to do it? Sure. But can we train everybody to do that? Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. See, I think the trouble, at least for a general surgeon, if they were doing some type of thoracic case, you know, using a robot or doing some type of video-assisted thoracoscopic procedure, uh, would be very, you know, useful. Uh, they would feel fairly comfortable uh, learning the anatomy and some other, uh, you know, dissection techniques uh, may not be too different. But the trouble becomes to if they had to convert to open or they got into bleeding. Okay. Uh, that's where they may not have had significant open experience I'm that I'm might, be, I'm might be troublesome. Pick up on that a little bit because um, I'm going to quote Sam Money. Sam Money uh, was at Scottsdale, now he's going back to Oshner Clinic. And he showed a video at the Society Clinical Vascular Surgeon Surgery, and it was nutcracker syndrome. We moved the renal vein, disconnected from the vena cava, moved it inferiorly, and reanastomosed it. It was the most beautiful exposure that I've ever seen. Pretty complex vascular mm -hmm. operation. And he said, but I didn't do that. You're My wrong. urologist did it. Sure. Okay, so to the point, maybe you should be credentialed based upon the, the, the instruments that you use rather than the operations. Our, the, the robotic vascular procedures done in this institution yeah. were largely done by the urologists right. uh, because they are what doing in vena cable tumors. They don't get vascular credentials, they get urologic credentials but they do it, and this is one of the things that worries me a little bit about the vascular surgeons, is our people will not come out anymore trained in laparoscopic surgery. They're not gonna have that skill set. Right. Um, whereas if you do go through general surgery, you can pivot to wherever the technology is taking you, but we really you know, have lost the endoscope, endovascular capabilities that we once had. Right. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the most inspiring lectures I ever heard was from Murray Brennan, who mm -hmm. uh, was the chief of surgery at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. And, and he cautioned against that. Mm -hmm. uh, he thought that you know, we're physicians first and we're surgeons second. And that rather than focusing on a particular technique, we should it's really embrace a, a, disease, a, a disease or a group of disease, a group of diseases, and we should evolve how we take care of those diseases uh, appropriately. So, I mean, you know, those oncologists, they're not cisplatinin doctors. I mean, they're, they're physicians that take care of cancer. And once a new therapy comes in and proves to be better, you adopt it, you adapt to that. And, and, and I would think that that's what we should continue to do. I, I uh, uh, certainly when, when, when I started, Surgeons were doing thoracotomies and cabbages and 
-hmm. and you're doing relatively straightforward congenital heart surgery, that was that was all within the scope of practice. I think that doesn't happen very okay. much anymore. Uh, I do think that uh, you know maybe we need to, as Marvin pointed out, we have to have a start with a general overview and then subspecialized. And I think that those uh, residents who want to do general thoracic surgery, they take a different road. Those general, those residents that want to do cardiac surgery, whether it's aortic or structural, they take a totally separate road. And those who want to do vascular surgery, you know, a third separate road. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, e it's easier said than done. How is CV surgery evolving in relation to the interventional field? You work with cardiologists every day. Every day. Uh, both in referrals and in the heart team and doing uh, tower, for example. So all of our cases, uh, obviously the patients get referred to you typically by a cardiologist. Uh, we usually have some type of multidisciplinary discussion about all the patients that we're gonna operate on amongst the heart team. So we've taken the heart team concept that was started initially with structural heart. And at least where I work, uh, we've moved that out into um, uh, basically all uh, types of uh, procedures. So all of our coronary cases, valve cases, uh, aortic cases, anything uh, that's gonna be operated on gets reviewed first by a multidisciplinary team to make sure that uh, everybody's on board, that uh, you know, um, you know, everything is done correctly for the patient. Um, so you know, we have a, a great interaction. I think that builds camaraderie among a team. Uh, I think uh, you know when you get to difficult cases, you know these patients, or you know these uh, referring physicians a lot better. You've worked with them on a daily basis, and uh, it's really made for a great team kind of concept to extend it beyond just structural heart, which is what happens probably in most hospitals these days. I would imagine Could, the heart team is really concentrated just amongst structural heart. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean that's mandated for TAVR. Correct. It's it's not mandated for all of structural heart, and I do think that. Yes, here we have we have a very functional, effective team that that permeates not just the TAVR world but but all of structural heart, and I'm not sure that that's the same everywhere. And and I think that that you know that's Shangri La. You, you know, you have everybody working together and. Uh, tailoring the best therapy for the patients. And so that's one thing cardiac surgery somewhat has kind of missed the boat on is staying on top of mitral valve disease. Uh, so we don't have the same kind of oversight and scrutiny that we do with TAVR when it comes to uh, uh, consideration for percutaneous mitral valve options uh, for these patients. Well, I think, you know, I think that- Depends uh, on the institution. So I, 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 I think certainly as, the reason that evolved, as you know, was to to try to keep um, the right decisions being made for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. In that, uh, having cardiac surgeons and cardiologists working together, it was felt would be the best way to come across to come with the right decisions. I, I think as the as the as the interventional techniques get better. I don't think that should change our indications for right. what procedures we do. We still have to follow evidence-based practice. Uh, and, and again, it's not the techniques, it's the disease process that we should, in my opinion, be focused on. Mm -hmm. So since we're really focused on training the cardiovascular surgeon of the future, how does the heart team relate to the trainees? I mean, what, what role do they play in the heart team or do they? Yeah, so typically, you know, we have a meeting uh, where we go over uh, all transcatheter therapy patients where we'll uh, review their indications, review their imaging. We'll talk about uh, why we would use one thing over another, uh, things to watch out for in specific patients uh, from an anatomic perspective. And so we have our trainees, fellows, uh, folks that are spending extra time with us to do a structural heart year. You know, they're intimately involved with the team and participating in those meetings and preparing cases. and. Uh, uh, that type of stuff. So next question is, is it possible to improve my technical performance? Just looking at skills outside the OR without a manner so as to increase my technical capability to be a deliberate practice? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that one of the great advances in surgery has been the high fidelity simulation that exists at many places. And I think it's, uh, it's part of 
the requirements in general surgery and uh, will be a requirement in cardiothoracic surgery. I, I mean, there's incredible, I mean, we, I don't want to date you, Alan, but uh, when we were, you know, we used to sew bananas and chicken legs mm -hmm. and uh, it was a way to learn how to cut and sew, but, but there's much better ways, not just to learn how to cut and sew, but to use scopes and wires and catheters uh, that that can really give you a, a high level of fidelity and improve your skills, I think. Yeah, your significant other should always be complaining about those knotted silk ties that are <laughs> on the armchair or something like that because there should be dozens of them. But, I mean, and to answer it seriously, there's different levels of sophistication of mm -hmm. trying to do this. I mean, number one is just the basic things, and that is learning. Our, our craft and trade is... Sewing. sewing and sewing and and again as a trainee the the better you are when you come to the operating room the more you're going to get to do i mean yeah. it's just quite as simple as that if you know the first time you sit down you don't know one end of a needle holder from another well there ain't gonna be too many sutures placed and that's and that anastomosis and so that's the opportunity is learn how to tie learn how to sew anastomosis learn how to close skin. And if you master those three things, then all it, the rest of it's just about understanding the disease process and setting up the operation. And, and that's the other thing that you're probably gonna to have to learn from a mentor because, I mean, everyone knows that, you know, the residents in there are struggling um, and the, the tendon comes in and all he does is reorient the clamps and the retractors and all of a sudden it seems easy. And that's part of the art of being able to do this. So yeah, I think practice is important. There are certain criteria. One of our partners, John Bismuth, heavily involved in building these endovascular models and trying to quantitate what that is. Always amazes me that there is no quantitation process. We equate numbers of cases with technical capability. And we know that's not the case, you know, right. and that, that's the problem. I think one of the things that we sometimes mm -hmm. overlook in that is that we have these great models, great fidelity. Uh, we ask our trainees to go out and practice on these things. But I think that the one thing that gets overlooked sometimes that would be a much better benefit to those trainees is have a dedicated faculty member that's yep. going to go through uh, and give tips and tricks and things that they uh, may not think of and you know show them how to do things but then really uh, let them do things and let and critique them uh, on their technique and things that uh, ways that they can, can improve and I think that really adds to these simulation things is when faculty is engaged and involved and actively helps out so because it's it's not just practice it's practice perfect, perfect yeah <laughs> and it's you know it's like watching the golf channel you know you watch the masters of golf not necessarily the game uh, and and you, you you see how they do what they do and you try to imitate them and and so it's not just getting into a simulator and or, or uh, on the chicken leg it to, to just throwing stitches in and trying to be as fast as you can it's trying to be as perfect as you can in my opinion you know one of the most focused I've ever seen in a residence was that uh, we said a week from now at our conference we're going to bring in these models and everybody is going to sew an anastomosis and we're going to give a prize for the best and we're going to give a prize for the worst <laughs> it was pretty interesting they were yeah. in there every night you know, right. <laughs> it's bad enough not being the best you sure don't want to be, be the, the worst. worst of course we didn't actually do that but it's all about using the right prompts to get yeah. the right response okay fear is a great motivator when do residents need to start operating with patients and start the learning curve we're all looking at you, Marvin, because that's, yeah. that's yeah. a tough question. Uh, so, you know, I think, um, you know, early on uh, operative uh, experience and letting them do parts of cases is critical. Um, I think you have to, again, uh, having dedicated faculty uh, geared towards teaching that's willing to give up portions of cases or the entire case, depending upon the resident or fellow's skill level, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's, that's the key thing. You just have to have engaged faculty and allow them uh, under appropriate supervision to uh, to learn. I think it's a graduated level of responsibility and that that's where the practice can pay off. If you come in as a resident and you can tie knots really well and you are technically, you, you can demonstrate that you're technically facile, you'll get to do more and more. Uh, if, and the converse is also true. Mm -hmm. Cardiac surgery is a highly technical specialty. Uh, you can't really teach somebody how to sew on somebody's obtuse marginal artery, I don't think. Right. 
so, I mean, I think you can teach people how to open. I think you can teach pretty much anybody how to cannulate. And those are all skill sets that you develop on your journey towards being a good technical surgeon. So, I mean, the, the, the more you're able to do, the more you will be able to do. Yeah, I think one of the, my observations about cardiac surgery, it is probably the single most audited specialty that is out there. I mean, it's just having your name up in lights. The idea that you're expected to do a coney bypass, you know, open somebody's chest, cannulate the heart, stop the heart, do these bypasses, restart it, with a 1% mortality rate is just shocking to me. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of pressure. I mean, the trainees always want to do more and more and more, but there's a huge amount of pressure on the attending to make sure mm -hmm. that there's the best outcome that can be achieved with that patient, because it's not the resident's name who's going up right. at M&M, or in our case, when we report at our cardiovascular service line, it goes up by the individual attending. So it's, it's pretty tough from that standpoint. And then, you know, vascular surgery has always been envious that you had the SDS database. You know, I'm like, whoa, be careful. Be what careful you what for. you want. You know, this game it's certainly a huge role, but it's tough. It's shocking to me sometimes when I go and see patients and you see all their medical comorbidities and they haven't taken care of themselves and all the problems with their organ systems and we have the Society of Thoracic Surgeons risk calculator and you put in their risk of surgery and it's 1%. Um, yeah. I mean, there is no margin for error. You go look back at the patient and look at the calculator yeah. and figure out what was put in wrong. Well, but, but I think that yeah. speaks to how effective training in cardiothoracic surgery has been. Yep. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, I mean, it's an inconvenient truth, but it's the truth. I think that over the years, that cardiac surgery had the luxury of being able to attract really smart, really talented surgical trainees who wanted to become cardiac surgeons. And, and I think that, um, I have a brother who's a general surgeon that used to say, you cardiac surgeons, you always take, you know, among the best of our trainees, and you take them away from general surgery, and we've already taught them how to operate, and you just teach them how to do cardiac surgery. And I think in the past that was really true, and it, and it certainly allowed the selection process to, to see how somebody, as they were going through general surgery, had an interest in cardiac surgery, had the ability to be a really good surgeon and they could be selected as such. And, uh, you know, I don't think, you know, certainly somebody coming out of medical, medical school, school doesn't have much experience or probably any experience in cardiac surgery. So they're not really sure uh, if they have the ability, the aptitude. Certainly senior surgeons haven't had the ability to evaluate that medical student to see if they have the ability, the aptitude. and that. That makes the calculus even more difficult. So interesting though, Tom, um, I had exactly the same reservations. Um, I despised vascular surgery even when I was a first and second year <laughs> general surgery because I thought it was, patients were too sick, too complicated, I couldn't figure it out, I didn't get to yeah. do anything. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't really until very late yeah. on that I decided I wanted to be a vascular surgeon. and I would never have gone into vascular surgery as a medical student, however, Again, the medical students seem to have figured it out. There's been a boom right. in the number of people who are applying. Yep. And so then the knock-on effect could have been, you know, there's half the class are gonna be fired, are gonna quit and go mm -hmm. up. That's not happened, actually. Right. There's very little movement that's actually taken place out of it. And so, you know, maybe we don't give the medical students enough credit in terms of being able to figure out what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's really tough to take a you know fourth year medical student that has been on a couple rotations. Mm -hmm. Every case is the greatest thing that they've seen, and ask them to come up with a lifelong commitment to a specialty right. is tough. Yep. Yeah. You know what happens? Because I always ask them, you know, how on earth did you say to do it? There's right. always a story. story. There's always a story that I rotated on the service. I worked with Doctor Atkins. He took yeah. an interest in me. Yep. He spent sure. time. There's always somebody who has influenced that student to go into a particular specialty. And, and I think we've kind of pivoted to get, to get medical students a lot more engaged and exposed to vascular surgery earlier on. Well, that, that's definitely a, uh, a, a trap that cardiothoracic surgery fell into, which was to not earlier engage medical students and junior level residents. Uh, 
And, and uh, certainly uh, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and the AATS have started to yeah. do that now, to go out and, and engage medical students to show them, I mean, th there has never been a more exciting time right. to go into cardiothoracic surgery mm -hmm. or cardiovascular surgery. The things that we're able to do and how well we're able to do them, it's better now than ever before. Right. And, and so we just have to get the word out to everybody what a great specialty it is. Yeah, I, I agree with you. In fact, one of our recent meetings, there was a panel. I got mad, to be honest with you. I went on the panel, but it was nothing but gloom, doom, yeah. and despair from one presenter. I said, I don't think there's ever been a better time to be doing what we're doing at the moment. The opportunities are immense. The reimbursement's pretty good for sure. what we get paid for. We're pretty valued. The two leading causes of death in the United States is coronary artery disease and lung cancer. Mm -hmm. That makes up, you know, more than half of, uh, more than half yep. than what the leading causes of death. And those are two diseases that are very effectively managed by cardiothoracic surgery. So let's try and nail down some of these questions. So we've kind of touched on this, but any advice for medical students interested in CV surgery? Well, I think the most important thing is to find a mentor. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we touched on that a little bit. Having somebody that's going to take you to the operating room, that's going to spend time showing you things, pointing out things as a medical student, maybe letting you do some type of part of the procedure if possible. Uh, I mean, that really ignites people's fire. Yep. Yeah, no question. And, and uh, I think that as a medical student, going up and finding somebody who seen, you know, cardiac, thoracic, vascular, congenital heart surgeon, we were all medical students at one time. You know, we all had a great interest and enthusiasm, and I think we still do. And sure. uh, I mean, I, I love having excited medical students around. Yeah. They make you think about things in ways that you used to think about when you were a medical student. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting question, maybe a plant. With all the scrutiny of cardiac surgeons are under and the fact that most patients expect the staff surgeon to do the case, how do you allow the trainee to get involved in it? I think you really kind of talked about how you, this graded expectation. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that uh, you can't compromise an operation because of having a resident do it. So I think that, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the, the, I think the hardest part of an operation is the judgment that goes into the operation. And that's, that's where the attending can be very helpful in guiding the resident. Uh, there are some muscle memory techniques that may take some residents longer than others to, to develop, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but you can't compromise the operation because you're training a resident. And I do think that the last 50 years have demonstrated that you can successfully train residents and successfully do operations despite the scrutiny. Right. Tom, you've stimulated some folks to want to be a congenital heart surgeon. And maybe even longer to train than Marvin took. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> well, so, you know, there's a, a congenital heart surgery is a very so, small subspecialty within cardiothoracic surgery. And uh, uh, certainly the, if you think that the level of scrutiny and the need for great technical ability is high in cardiac surgery, which it is, it's even <laughs> higher in congenital heart surgery. So. Uh, I, I do think that uh, if you want, if you think you have an interest in congenital heart surgery, uh, I think you have to demonstrate your abilities as a as a cardiac surgeon first, as a cardiac surgery trainee, and then everybody now really has to go and do subspecialty training, uh, and there is a board track to do that. And congenital cardiac surgery has increased their training now, I think, to two years across the board, right. where previously it had been a one-year uh, subspecialty. And most people that come out of congenital cardiac surgery these days, once they get their first job, it's usually several years of kind of mentorship from senior partners uh, before they're doing independent cases, you know, especially complex things. All right, a couple more questions, and then we'll pivot. Is it an evaluation grid for technical skills? I think the answer to that is no. <laughs> really. Well, there, so there are the milestones that uh, that they have in um, uh, the TSDA and uh, uh, and part of the clinical competency committee is that there are there are skill sets that the trainees are supposed to meet to go um, 
and progress to the next level. And I, I think we've all seen it. There, there, there are some residents who are just really technically gifted. Mm -hmm. There are some residents that take longer. You know, it's funny when I was, uh, come from a big family and you know, when we started having kids, we'd all call my mother up and say, geez, mom, so-and-so, you know, started walking at 10 months. And another one would call up and say, mom, you know, I'm a little worried, you know, it's now 11 months and so-and-so is not walking. And the mother, as wise as she was, would say, well, you know, yeah, some kids walk early, some kids walk late. By the age of three, they're all walking. And, and I think that that's true with, with, uh, with residents. I think that, you know, there is, there, is a, there is a learning curve and the slope of that's a little bit different with different people. Okay, what is that? What are the non-technical skills do you think important that a cardiovascular surgeon should have? The answer, none. <laughs> Ouch, yeah. that hurt. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so I think the most important thing is judgment about these cases. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. that uh, obviously comes with uh, experience and yeah. good judgment comes from bad judgment, they say. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, that's probably the most important thing is uh, choosing the right patient to, to be able to get these optimal results that everybody expects, knowing who not to operate on. And I think too, I mean, I think the non-technical skills, I mean, as you pointed, the heart team, I mean, I think teamwork, it's a team sport. Uh, and I think you have to work well in a team. And, and I do think that, uh, I think certainly historically, you know, we all trained as individuals and I think appropriately, now the training and the focus is on the team and being, and being in a, an effective and respectful member of the team. All right. Well, I'm going to pivot the conversation to the hot topic of the moment, and that is COVID-19, and focus it on the impact on our training programs. Um, what we've done here recently is split the attendings into two teams, split the residents into two teams. Uh, we have basically gone down to semi-emergent or slash emergent, and so we've gone down from running 11 cardiovascular operating rooms a day to three. and. I think we all agree if this lasted three weeks, no big deal. It lasts four or five months out of a two-year fellowship training program in cardiac or vascular. What are we That's gonna huge. do about that? Yeah, so I mean, if you take a quarter of somebody's experience in cases and take that away, well, that's gonna have a huge impact. Um, I mean, the, the crazy thing is we have no idea when the end is in sight for this, so, um, you know, maybe residents are going to have to stay longer. Maybe they may not even make their case requirements, which is a big concern. Well, that's part of the, I know we're not supposed to say problem anymore, we're supposed to say challenge, but it's a problem yeah. in that the way you qualify to take the boards is the case list. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not, it's, you send, you, there's a certain number of cases that you have to have and a certain number of index cases you have to have. Uh, you know, we, and for the most part, we've gone through a period where training programs are able to do that. We now face what is arguably the biggest healthcare crisis in our lifetimes, and that uh, it's going to take time away from us taking care of cardiac or vascular or thoracic patients and taking care of a vast multitude of patients who are going to be sick with COVID-19. Uh, and, I, and I do think there's a lot that our residents and our fellows will learn from taking care of those patients. It's not going to add, and it's certainly going to take away from their uh, their 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 case lists. But I, but I do think it will be valuable education for them. Well, it's interesting because two the two residents that I mentioned uh, in our vascular program who are applying with cardiac are doing video interviews at the moment. Yeah. Could you hire somebody based upon that? A video interview? Um, I would have reservations. I wouldn't uh, never say sorry. no, but I'd be doing a lot of calling to the people that he worked with who are friends of mine who extreme, <laughs> extreme times call for extreme measures. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna fall into your trap. Because you know, we, uh, <laughs> you know they're the uh, in, in that uh, so if you had asked me two years ago, would I be willing to see patients in a video visit? Yeah. I would have said, what are you, crazy? Yeah. You know, you need to be able to see the patient, talk to them, shake their hand, That's examine true. them. Well, I spent the whole morning yesterday doing video visits and it worked really well. Mm -hmm. If you'd asked me five years ago, 
you know, what do you think about the virtual ICU and using uh, the video to care for patients in the ICU? I would have said, what are you, crazy? Kind of like what they probably asked Marvin when he applied for his cardiac residency. <laughs> and, you know, it's a very effective tool. And I think that we just have to, I mean, if, if you said, you know, certainly I know if you ask car most cardiac surgeons 10 years ago, if, if you thought we'd be replacing aortic valves with transcatheter therapies would say, what are you, crazy? But, but it's not totally crazy. I think we just have to continue to, if that's what it takes, that's what it'll take. So yeah, maybe I would. Okay. Yeah, I think it's gonna to be tough this year, especially since you know half of the interview season was over. So mm -hmm. people were able to go to maybe half of the places. Exactly. So, so we can write a paper about that. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's a very interesting observation, Arsene. Yeah. Do you preferentially select the people Somebody you saw in see person, in person. Yeah. and got a feel and a vibe yeah. for versus some video type of visit? Yeah. But I mean, so we're trying to run our didactic education programs online. We use Zoom; it seems to work pretty well. Right. Um, so we can supplement to some extent, but there's still going to be this technical gap. Right. Anything they can be doing at home. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, a lot of the simulation techniques that we have here housed in Mighty, uh, which is our simulation center, uh, you know, really you can't bring large groups of people together to work on those. So maybe we, you know, put together two or three people to come at a time, stagger them to come work on uh, different models, endovascular trainers, uh, you know, uh, high fidelity type of open model technique and practice, um, but stagger it so there's not a whole yep. lot of contact. Maybe we, maybe we need to think about doing that. Well, I mean, there's a knowledge component of it, and, and it's, yep. you know, it, it, there, there's now more time for people to read and to use sure. online resources. And I agree, I mean, I think the skill sets, those are, those are things that we're gonna have to get creative about, to, you know, getting people to keep, keep, their, keep their hands busy. Um, um, you know, I think, you know, we have a great, uh, you know, Mighty is a great simulation center. I'm not sure everybody else is so fortunate. Closed. Can't bring anybody up there right now. That's, yeah. I mean, it, this wow. is the, one of the problems. But, but I do think, rather than being pessimistic about not being able to operate, to your point, this is a huge opportunity to read and write and build your knowledge base. And so don't squander it. I mean, to be honest, one of those things you'll look back four or five years yeah. from now and go, oh man, need another oh, one of those COVID that. things that I can actually spend some time <laughs> reading, you know? So it's a look on it as an opportunity right. uh, rather than, you know, can't get my hands bloody and operate on a daily basis. Yeah, we better have 30 or 40 publications from our residents. Right, exactly. <laughs> over with. But I do think it's gonna be a challenge for the societies or yeah. for the boards to go, okay, well, what are we gonna do with this cohort of residents? I mean, let's say you have somebody who you don't think is quite where they should be. Maybe they weren't gonna be quite where they should be regardless, but now there's a built-in problem, and that is that there's a, the COVID excuse. Right. Well, but I mean, is this really any different than you know, World War II, I mean, sure. all of the, not just the surgeons, but the physicians uh, of training age were left, you know, left. And, uh, and certainly for surgery, they got surgical training, but, uh, but it, was a, it was a specific kind of training. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a similar kind of experience. I think that, you know, we, we have the benefit in medicine that we have very intelligent people we who have demonstrated incredible ability to be successful in whatever they do and i think that this is no different from times past okay one other question what do you think about decreasing decreasing demand for cardiac surgeons is cardiac surgery a dying specialty thank you <laughs> I really think it's the opposite. Uh, you know, when I was uh, initially looking for jobs, I mean, the job market is crazy. Uh, I mean, in terms of, you know, not just academic practice, but also out in community practice. I mean, the, the job market is, is great these days. As I said earlier, I mean, I, there's, it's never been a more exciting time to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. Those diseases aren't going away anytime soon. And I think that, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, if you look at the number of coronary artery bypass operations that have been done, sure, compared to the 80s, it went down. It's going up again. You know, as the, as the uh, effectiveness of cabbage for coronary disease has 
been sure, demonstrated yeah. time and time again as being effective. I think that that uh, you know, are we going to be replacing aortic valves differently than we did before? Well, yeah. But I think, but I think, as Marvin pointed out, I mean, cardiac surgeons are part of the heart team. There's electrophysiology that you know, the, you know, the, the surgical treatment of uh, arrhythmias, uh, aortic disease, uh, structural heart disease. I mean, there's a lot of different things that adult congenital heart disease, transplantation, mechanical circulatory support. These are all new fields that are part of cardiothoracic, and I didn't even talked about yeah. general thoracic surgery. Uh, but these are these are all specialties that have, are blossoming, and the uh, the need for people to be able to do them is 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 going up. During this COVID crisis, I mean, we had a little uh, webinar the other day about ECMO, and what's the role of the cardiovascular surgeon going to be in taking care of these patients? So we talked a little bit about that yesterday. So, you know, what we're seeing internationally and so far in the United States is that the role for ECMO in COVID-19 patients so far has been relatively limited. Um, in our experience here, which has been, you know, seeing patients for about three weeks now, uh, we've placed one patient on ECMO. Uh, we may have a second patient. Uh, up in New York, my understanding is there's maybe three or four patients uh, at the various hospitals. So. I would suspect that the role may be small, um, but you know the, there are going to be patients that uh, this is their last resort. Uh, I, I, I couldn't disagree more. Yeah, we So, so I, I'm more than just uh, ECMO cannulator or decannulator. I mean, I, I, I'm a physician first, a sure. surgeon second, and a cardiac surgeon third. You know, I didn't I didn't spend. All, you know, almost a decade in training just to be focused on ECMO cannulation and decannulation. Sure, we can do that, but you know, we have been, you know, we spend all of our time taking care of really sick patients. So we, we're expert surgeons, we're intensivists. You know, we have the ability to evaluate people who are sick and not sick. You know, and, and I think that we may have to dust off some of those skill sets as the ICUs and the wards are being overwhelmed yeah. with sick patients but but I think that we have the education the training and the ability to meet those needs I get the point of your question. yeah so yeah, yeah so we've actually had a discussion do, do we need to be tuned up by our anesthesiologists and intubation do our vascular surgery group need to be taught about ECMO cannulation mm -hmm. uh, because you know, there are not a lot of cardiac surgeons and vascular surgeons you can take out half that mm -hmm. team pretty easily and right, get right. down to bare bones. And the question is, well, what do we need to do to, to build next guy up kind of thing? So what, you know, what we've done is we, uh, we have taken our team and we've divided it in two. Uh, and I'm not sure this is the right way to do it, but this is the way we've done it. Uh, and that we're gonna, one team is gonna be responsible for all of the responsibilities for cardiac surgery for two weeks. And then we're gonna change, you know, we're going to tag team and have the other team will come in and have the other team go in uh, so that we can hopefully keep a healthy group out of the hospital uh, and, and trade off. We, 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 we hope nobody gets sick, uh, but uh, our, our second hope is that if somebody gets yeah. sick, not everybody gets sick. And the role of residents in taking care of the COVID-19 patients. We've kind of gone through an evolution. I mean, first of all, our GMA office came out and said they will not be treating these patients. In, in, a, in a way, it's unrealistic as we start ramping this up. And right. so now we've kind of changed that. They need to be trained with PPE, et cetera, but mm -hmm. they're now just part of the team that's going to be taking care of the patients, much like we are and much like the intensivists are. So when you were a resident, Alan, if, if they yeah. told you you weren't able to take care of these sick patients, you'd rush towards them. You'd, yeah, be, you'd I mean, be mad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't. You know, I yeah. think I think everybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that um, you know, our residents are, as I said, smart, yeah. talented, uh, wonderful people, and and I, we should ask them. I and mean, we we should ask attendings. You know, do you feel comfortable taking care of these patients and understand? The risks that are part of it, and if if they say yes, I do, and yes, I want to, I think we should honor and respect their decision on both sides of that. 
as for attendings, uh, my opinion. Well, that's probably a great yeah. note to end it on. You have a final Sorry. comment? No, I think it's a wonderful time to be a cardiovascular surgeon. Um, I definitely recommend anybody out there who's uh, watching this uh, webcast podcast. Uh, if you want to um, uh, look at the different training paradigms, we're happy to discuss things further. Or find a mentor, somebody that can help you sort through some of the stuff, especially if you're in the medical student uh, age, uh, age range, trying to figure things out in life. Uh, having some type of mentor to help you uh, figure out these training par paradigms is, is paramount. All right. Thank you both very much. Yeah, thanks, much. Thank you for thanks, watching. Marvin. That was wonderful. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. And that's our show for today, and thank you for joining us. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the future of cardiovascular surgery training, so send us a tweet using the hashtag CVNow, and don't forget to tag us at DeBakeyCVEDU. If you like the show and you want to hear more, please subscribe to our channel and leave us a review. You can find more digital cardiovascular education opportunities through DeBakey CV Education by following us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter.